Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, hello and welcome to the 500th episode of Off the Beaten Track podcast. I'm your host, Stu Whiffin. If you're new to this podcast, well, you have joined, well, on quite some episode, 500 episodes. Who'd have thought it, eh? Um, Well, before we get on to today's guest, which is incredible, I've I've worked so hard to try and make sure we got something absolutely huge for this episode, and I mean, there's a lot of people to thank, but I mean, I've got Neil Finn Neil Finn of Crowded House. Um, I think Crowded House have sold 26 million records, something like that. Um, and I presume most of you um, have listened to them records, and they're fantastic. Neil Finn is an absolutely incredible songwriter. And we have a wonderful chat today. We talk about Ace Records. We talk about the new Crowded House record. Um, we obviously talk about... The journey that, that, that Neil's been on with Crowded House and obviously Split Ends as well. We talk about that and it's lovely. Um, I, I couldn't be happier. Um, I, I was so starstruck as well. I've, I've mentioned to you before on this these episodes, like, I rarely get that starstruck. Um, but I really, really did on this one because I'm such a fan. And so not only was it a massive, massive treat for me to get to speak to Neil, um, I get to to then share it as a, as a podcast as well, and uh, and I'm thrilled for uh, thrilled that I get to do that. And before we get on with that, so I want to make some thank you. So I want to thank um, Scroobius Pip. Um, if it wasn't for for Pip, then I, I guess I wouldn't even have uh, sort of ventured into the world of podcasting. Um, it was kind of stumbling through episodes of uh, of the Drunk Cast with him. That uh, that got me interested in um, in doing podcasting, and it was and it was Pip that sort of pushed to uh, to, to to get me off of the drunk cast and get me to do uh, something on my own, and uh, and off the beaten track uh, was was very much part of that process. Um, for this episode, I really want to thank Tom Dark. Um, Tom's a, a a lovely gentleman that has has got me many guests over the years. And uh, he's got a podcast himself. He's he's part of the Monkey Tennis Alan Partridge podcast. Um, but when he reached out and said, "Look, I've got some time with Neil Finn. Are you interested?" I was like, "Mate, I am such a fan. Um, 
it would be incredible. Now, the new Crowded House record was not out until May, and so most of the kind of podcasts and the, the interviews and stuff that, that, that Neil's been doing won't be out for a long time, but I kind of pushed to make sure that I was allowed to put this one out literally a week after recording it. it less than that. I, I, I recorded that on... Uh, I recorded this episode on the Monday, and it drops on the Friday. So, uh, so yeah, so huge thanks to Tom for for sweetening the label to let me drop this chat as uh, as the 500th episode. I want to thank um, the team at Blue Murder Club Podcast uh, who have been producing this podcast for for uh, a good few years now, and uh, and that's a wonderful podcast in itself. So go check out the. The, the Blue Murder Club podcast, if you like uh, a bit of true crime. Um, some other people that have been uh, really important on the journey of this podcast today, I'm talking about it like this is the last ever episode. It's not, but 500 episodes is, feels like a milestone, so I should just acknowledge a few other people as well. Um, 76. Now, 76 is a wonderful producer that got things moving, um, and he still produces uh, lots of my other podcasts that, um, that I do. Um, just not this one, but um, but seventy six done uh, a big part of uh, the, the the early parts of of getting this up and running, um, and I guess most of all, I should thank you lot because from that very first nervous shaky episode I'd been, uh, I'd done with Mister Scribius Pip as the as the first guest, um, I feel like. I've relaxed into the podcast a little bit, and I hope that that, that comes across. You're probably going to see me go full, full circle on this episode because I was so nervous um, to, to to sit and chat to Neil. But once the chat gets going, I, I, I loosened up a little bit. Uh, there's been so many highlights over the 500 episodes, and uh, yeah, I'll uh, well that that's that's for you to judge. You know, you, you you've been a long time listener, and I appreciate that support so much. And uh, and and if you're not, if you've just joined uh, to listen to my chat with Neil, then when you finish, go and explore that back catalogue because, well, you're missing out on 499 episodes that are all there to be enjoyed for free. I'm not going to tell you anything about the Patreon today. Um, this is all about today's episode. You can find the links to that and the links to the socials and the links to everything else on offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com or patreon.com forward slash offthebeatandtrack. Um, I'm just going to get on with it. Please enjoy the 500th episode of Off The Beat and Track Podcast with the delightful Neil Finn. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It may stew with him. Neil, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Where are you? You're in London at the moment, right? Yeah, I'm in London, yeah. I'm in a hotel room. Um, I'm here to talk about uh, the new record we have um, coming out, uh, both the single Low High and the album's Gravity Stairs, Crowded House. About to, to have another crack at it. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Um, I mean, before we, we, we get on to the, 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 the playlist, can you give me like a, a bit of a kind of sort of snapshot as to if you're sort of sitting there on the sofa at home and, and how the process of like, right, we're going to make another crowded ass record. Like, what's the sort of process? Is it just like ring around the boys and go, I've got some songs, let's, let's jump back in the studio and do it? Well, it's not, yeah, and jumping back in the studio is not quite as simple as um, 
as it sounds if your band is strung out in all four corners of the globe as we are yeah uh, Nick Seymour, our bass player, lives in Sligo in the west coast of Ireland. Um, Elroy, my son, who is also the drummer now in uh, Crowded House, is living in London. Uh, my other son, Liam, lives in Los Angeles, and Mitchell Froome lives in Los Angeles, and I'm living in Auckland, New Zealand. So, yeah, that that is a a, a, a logistical problem, uh, but we managed to gather for three periods of time in order to make the uh, the rhythm tracks of the record. First of all, in Byron Bay um, in Australia, just before a tourist, an Australian tour. Uh, then in Bel Air in Los Angeles, just at the end of a, of a tour. And then in Auckland, at my studio in Auckland, sort of. Uh, so those three sessions combined with a whole lot of work at home, um, you know, in, in, in my private space, uh, analyzing, reworking, um, throwing things up in the air and rebuilding them, you know, it leads, leads to a... I think a really, really excellent result, but um, it's been a long process. Has a lot of it been done sort of remotely as well? Do you sort of obviously yeah. file share and uh, and get things yeah, a lot sort of file sharing going on? It's the modern way, and um, and and actually in ways quite good. Well, there's ups and uh, there's positives and negatives with it. The positives are that everyone gets a chance to really try their ideas out without scrutiny and the awkwardness of studio and the the clock ticking and all that. Um, so then some of those ideas really bear fruit. They take a bit of work. They take a bit more. Intensity. The downside is the slow is a bit of a slow process of getting things ticked off when there's different time zones to consider, and uh, that the process can slow down and, and a few occasions on that account. But uh, you just adapt and improvise, you know. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Neil, I'm going to kick off your playlist and <laughs> track one. I'm going to ask you, please, to tell me the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro, please. Well, the song is uh, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps." Um, which is the Beatles, of course, and a George Harrison song in particular, and a just uh, spectacular intro. Um, the song itself features Eric Clapton playing guitar, so you get like a um, you know certifiable '60s guitar hero alongside the, the greatest band of the '60s, and uh, you get led into this gorgeous, gorgeous song in the best possible way, and um, you know, like a. It's just a call to a call to perfection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, from the the early days of of, of uh, and even looking back to the Beatles and the early days of of, of of split hands and crowded house and such, the way that people would get their music then was traditionally on vinyl, and you would get played on the radio, and that was how you would get out there. And I guess in the sort of the last ten years, we've seen the evolution of streaming services, and and we've seen these kind of hot writers that are trying to sort of cram these songs to these kind of shortening attention spans to hook people in and mm. and, and and get on these spotify playlists and even you know things like tiktok are now becoming you know platforms for for artists to get heard and 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 artists that have long since retired get kind of brought back via something going viral on tiktok i just wonder when you're in the studio or, or, or even when you're writing do any of these sort of changes in in, in how people are consuming the music filter through into your creative process at all? Um, well, it, it, it inevitably does. Uh, these things all, all sort of find their way of influencing you, but not not in an obvious and overt way in my case. I sort of think you the process you grow up with, you adapt and improvise on top of that. And I'm always looking for a new angle every time I make a record and there's, there's things that won't satisfy me that, 
were okay last time, but um, you, you know, rather than repeat yourself, we grew up with that mentality. Um, and I embrace modern technology as much as I can. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, they say, and I can really, I really adhere to that uh, concept. Yeah. Trying to do too much, and also trying to be one of the kids is pretty hopeless as well. You know, like yeah. you can't. Uh, uh, trying to predict what might take off on TikTok. I don't know if any of the the things that have happened um, in any meaningful way have been, uh, you know, decided on by artists or record companies. The most yeah. significant ones seem to happen by chance, and um, so it's best not to try and predict or play the game, as it were, and just keep doing really good work in, in the best way you possibly can. And, you know, we'll use modern technology, and, um, you know, back in the day we embraced synthesizers and um, uh, willingly and, uh, you know, but guitars and synthesizers still have their place, and now there's all sorts of there's other uh, machines and um, song making equipment that I haven't yet ventured into because I I don't see the need. But you know, the basic I- pulling ideas out of thin air is still just as mysterious and challenging and and actually wonderful when it comes off. Absolutely. For track two, I'm going to take you back. And uh, I'm going to ask you to tell me the first thing you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please, Neil. Yeah, well, it was a song by the new Christy Minstrels, Green, Green, um, The Grass is Green on the Far Side of the Hill. Da, da, da. There were other songs around. We had singles and we had a record player when we were kids. And that was just one song that ended up on the turntable a lot for some reason. And it, yeah, weird things affect you in different ways. So that one just had a kind of a sense of some exotic place that I couldn't put my finger on. As it turned out, I think it was an American sort of sounding record, a little bit in that folk, you know, the new the folk um, tradition. But I didn't know where it was coming from. I had no idea. It just had a feeling of of other places and um, a kind of harmony, a real intense harmony, strength, you know, folk kind of basis to it. Uh, but when I was four years old, yeah, it resonated for me for some reason. Still goes around in my head sometimes when I'm in the shower. If uh, you had to pinpoint the emotion, what what would that have been? The emotion, oh, it was certain freedom attached to it. You know, um, grass is greener on the other side, a kind of feeling, you know, like something's going on out there. Even as a four or five-year-old, I was thinking, wow, yeah. this world's not like, not just what's happening out in my front yard. There's something else going on out there, you know. Yeah. Um, so a sort of a wonder, sense of wonder. Yeah. You mentioned singles then. Um Give me a sort of a, an insight into what what home was like growing up. Was it was it a musical place? Yeah, there was always music around. My, we had a piano, and my mum was played the piano by ear a little bit. Every party my parents had always had singing. They were always singing, sit, standing around a piano, singing the popular songs. Everyone had their item. The same, they'd sing the same one every party. You know, and nobody got sick of it. Yeah, my auntie would sing um, "Stormy Weather." My uncle would sing "Shake Hands with a Millionaire." Um, yeah, well, it just was seemed like part of a natural gathering of people is to sing. So, yeah, I feel lucky. I mean, it happened a lot in those days. It still maybe it still happens. Maybe people are a little more distracted now, but I think it's still quite special. Yeah, you you mentioned there was a piano in the house, like and you know having instruments about was was that something that you was actively encouraged to do? Because a lot of kids kind of kick against their parents when they're kind of you know had these things sort of thrust upon them, or was it something that you just gravitated to? Uh, well, we gravitated towards it. My brother and I, he was five years older than me. I wanted to do everything he was doing, and he was learning how to play piano. And um, So I wanted to learn, and we, you know, pretty soon 
<clears throat> realized that I had a reasonable voice so I could sing in tune and, um, you know, it was kind of cool that not, not many people could, which that made me feel good. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we could harmonize together, my brother yeah. and I, and, um, we got hauled out in front of our parents' friends to sing, um, little songs and, yeah, I didn't need much encouragement, but my parents certainly were very encouraging. They were, they were delighted to see that their sons were, um, you know, quite good at music, and you know, it was a lot of entertainment value for them. Yeah, absolutely. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Stay in the formative years, and I'm going to ask you to tell me the name of the song that reminds you of your time at school, please, Neil. Uh, well, the song Homeward Bound by Simon and Garfunkel um, reminds me particularly of a journey. My brother was at boarding school in Auckland at Sacred Heart, and I eventually went there too. Um, but when we were visiting him on free Sundays, as they call them, for some reason, that song, I must have heard it once going over the hill that leads into Auckland, and it just had a really powerful, evocative feeling to me of um, expanding. You know, again, I guess I was thinking about other, you know, the song is a melancholy um song about wanting to go home and um being on the road and uh, yeah, that mix of emotions of you know the big wide world out there but um you know the 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 call or the drag of home or whatever but yeah it just has still has that effect it takes me back to that exact moment and and my you know i was probably seven or eight at the time so that was my school days song yeah it's got a beautiful sense of wonder hasn't it that song he's he's it's yeah, pretty perfect. It's, I mean, he was he he wrote some so, exquisite songs at the time, and um, that one had a deep atmosphere. And the other one I loved was you know Only Living Boy in New York. Oh God, it, yeah, what it's a just record! Got so much atmosphere and so evocative of the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you enjoy school? By and large, yeah, yeah. I did I enjoyed school? I I didn't. I I I was you know good enough at at lessons that I did okay and. Um, you know, we had a lot of fun. We had pretty good school. I think there was a couple of teachers who were, you know, bordering on sadists. But, um, you know, you get away from get yeah. away from that. Look back, it's kind of funny more than anything else. Um, as long as you get 
you, you know, you escape their clutches more often than not. Yeah. Um, but we, I was in an era at secondary school where there was still caning, caning kid, kids, and uh, you know, it was a bit of a badge of honour. You know, I got caned. I got six on the ass by um, a brother at. And my whole ass went black and blue for about three weeks, and you know that was abuse. That was child abuse, really. But oh yeah, I didn't like it at the time, but it didn't sort of didn't seem to throw me off. Did you know what you wanted to be? Yeah, I, I decided I wanted to be a musician when I was about twelve years old, and um, yeah, I didn't really have any deviations from that. It seemed accessible, and and I already learned enough to. You know, to feel like I could write songs and you know make make a go of it. In the area that you, you grew up in, you know, did it seem like it was, you know, possible to to, to make it and then to make a career in in music? And like, and if so, like, who were the sort of inspirations? Well, it, would, it was unprecedented that a New Zealand musician could make it internationally. I don't think really anybody had, except maybe Kerry Takana, well, yeah, on an opera stage. Um, so it, I don't know what we were basing it on, but we had some some feelings of being able to take on take on the world. Um, my brother's band, Split Ends, when they started, had a very yeah you know, they were very ambitious, very willful, and and uh, reactionary, and uh, there was something about that that had a mag a sense of magic about it and wonder for me that I sort of thought, yeah, well maybe yeah maybe it's possible, you know, to to get out there and and do what what all those bands I we loved to uh, you do the same thing and. Um, yeah, there was a dream, definitely a dream forming. When you look back on them early tours and when it's kind of all to be played for, do you, do you look back really fondly on them times? Oh, yeah, there was amazing, amazing memories of being in Split Ends when I first joined. I was only 18 years old and coming to England for the first time. Um, you know, it was a mixture of things because some of that, the gloss of those deeply romantic held views from far away of, you know, Places like the Marquee Club as being some glamorous kind of place and finding the carpet all sticky and it's stinking of cigarettes and, <laughs> and human um, detritus and, you know, like, but so there was a mixture of, of things. But, you know, overall, it was a glorious, um, glorious time. And I was really lucky to be in my brother's band, you know, at the age of 18 and having that experience. And I really, I've probably um, short circuited quite a bit of um, paying my dues in that yeah. regard. So I've got to be grateful for that. And to be finding yourself overseas, you know, playing it in, in a band at such a young age, was you were you a confident young man? Yeah, I confident enough. I, I I wasn't a confident guitar player and certainly aware of my own limitations. And uh, for the first six months, there may have been a couple of members of the band who were questioning the logic of having me in there um, yeah. when I was clearly a little, you know, pretty remedial on the electric guitar. Uh, but they, but I could sing, and um, I knew that I sounded, you know, I was doing the job as a singer, yeah. And they believed in me, so I guess I was, I, in hindsight, I was definitely confident enough to to get out there. I didn't suffer yeah. from paralytic nerves or anything. Yeah, and I mean, sort of moving forwards to, you know, and and, and even the the, the the huge show the uh, uh, the the, the uh, in in Sydney the the the, the farewell show in the. Uh, so, uh, mid to late nineties, like I mean, does confidence get you through stuff like that when you know you're going to walk out in front of a crowd like that, which very very few people have ever experienced that that level of of, of attention being on stage and 
and obviously yeah. you being at the front, the focus is you know predominantly on you. Like, how do you deal with that? There's there's an element of apprehension going on stage. I haven't really ever suffered from terrible stage fright or um or nerves. You know, like there's people I know that'll throw up before before a show. I haven't really had that kind of level of anxiety, but definite apprehension. You want it to go really well, and the main thing that I always try and well in that particular show especially just focus on playing as well as we possibly could and really listening to each other and engaging each other, um, you know, which means eye contact on stage. It's really important and trusting each other and just, yeah, really listening and not getting too drawn into crowd watching. I mean, it was incomprehensible the amount of people anyway at that show and the, the scene was so spectacular. It was glorious to observe, but I didn't really want to get too, you know, we just concentrated on each other and really playing as well as we could and doing the right thing by the songs. Uh, I wore out my VHS copy of that, Neil. It was a, right. a, a wonderful, wonderful thing to, to watch. And not just for your performance. I don't know if you recall, but there was guys in the crowd throwing each other like 20 foot in the air. It was, yeah, uh, it, was, it was incredibly difficult for some of the fans who'd been camped out all day. I didn't realize till later what a hardship it was to be <clears throat> stuck there because the crowd was much larger than anybody anticipated and it would have been very hard to get out once you were there. So, you know, all sorts of weird realizations that, I mean, what are, you know, how are people going to go, how are they going to go to the bathroom? You know, don't ask that really question. <laughs> slight and slender young, young girls that were getting, you know, knocked around by big bruising guys moshing at the front. And I, you know, I felt for them and luckily nobody got hurt, you know, but it was a miracle really. Yeah. It was, it was a, a beautiful event. Can you tell me, please, the first song you remember buying from a record store, please, Neil? Um, well, the first record I ever bought was a Donovan record, actually, um, called Fairy Tale. Um, and I don't know what I was learning how to play electric acoustic guitar at the time, and, and learning folk music actually specifically because that was the only guitar teacher that was in town. It was an accident, really, but I, I liked, you know, I liked it learning how to finger pick the claw hammer and things like that. And and um, I think I heard Donovan and he was obviously an exponent of that kind of finger pick guitar. So I got it in order to study that. And um, it, it has a very evocative feeling for me to hear it, that record now. And amongst other things which were, um, you know, very classic Donovan folky kind of things like Candyman, I think was one of the songs. There's um, a song on there called Sunny Good Street. Um, which is really unusual and kind of sort of jazz, like a slightly musical jazzy kind of vibe to it. Um, and of course, I'm in London now, staying just up the road from Good Street. So um, it always reminds me of, it reminded me then when I'd never been to London of London, yeah. but it, and it certainly does even more so. Oh, wonderful. Well, were record shops important places for you growing up? Uh, yeah, they were, because they were the only place you could really go to get music. Um, I, 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 you know, gathered a f quite a few records around me. My brother would bring me records from Auckland. Um, he introduced me to a lot of music, and he was in university at the time and starting off split ends, and he brought home Led Zeppelin II, um, Roxy Music, some David Bowie records, Carol King, Tapestry, various records that he gifted me that were quite pivotal at the time. Um, and, yeah, I discovered, I remember with the Led Zeppelin record, I... I'd put the speakers of our stereo facing inwards like headphones and, and a pillow in between them and that's how I discovered Led Zeppelin. It was pretty pretty mighty actually. Yeah. Way to, uh, it was quite loud and, and very all-consuming and immersive, you know. 
So uh, that was yeah, that knocked me out. <clears throat> I'm going to um, I mean, I asked you about confidence. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Uh, uh, as a young man, uh, in regards to sort of taking to the stage on them early tours. And, and confidence aside, I want to ask a little bit about drive and, and what drives... What drives your creativity, you know, to, to, to this day? Uh, wh- where does that drive come from to, to make another Credit House record or to make another new film record? Um, well, it is compulsive and it's probably more, even more so than ever. And there's a certain stubbornness about, because th- there's a lot of times we sit down to write something and um, what comes out is quite banal. And, you know, you question whether you might have, you might have seen, you know, your best ideas um and then there's a stubbornness kicks in and say no 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 no. i mean if i keep on this and i turn up every day something good will emerge and it almost and it always does yeah and uh and there's that's the fascination of it really it's there's no real necessarily a rule for when it's going to turn up or how it's going to turn up you just keep yourself interested and kind of get playful with it again like a child and then use the best editing instincts of an adult to figure out the good stuff and dispense with the the bad stuff, and then, you know, working out how to make it to finish it off is is a really fascinating process. And there's always the reward and the and the, you know that if you go through that difficult birthing process and have those flashes of inspiration, but then prepared to put the work in to make something really beautiful that's fashioned and and ordered, and uh, then you get the big payoff in both in front of an audience and. The idea that somebody will come up to you at some point and say, and sometimes it's songs that aren't the ones that everybody loves, come up and say, "I, I really bonded with a song of yours, which was a you know a B side on some record, and and it really helped me through a difficult time." And then um, you just go, "Wow, fantastic! What a useful thing!" Alongside it being an intensely rewarding to come up with that on a on a personal level, there actually does seem a purpose to it, which is a bigger purpose and. Uh, you know, worth the struggle. So that's that's a compelling thing. I can't think of anything else other than digging my hands in the soil and growing things that is as elemental as that, you know. For track five, I'm going to ask you to tell me the song that soundtracked your years clubbing. I wasn't a big clubber, actually, to be honest. Um, but I but I did, I noticed on the, on the question you asked it, you, you made a point of saying it doesn't have to be at a, at a nightclub. Um, 
I would associate my years of going to parties and more late school era. And um, it occurred to me that one record that was an absolute dead dead cert for every party we went to anyway was was Cocker Happy, the show Cocker record. It just was a really big record in that in that era. And for some reason, the song that really resonated for me on that record, they're all really it's a great record and but was Marjorie which is an unusual song it was probably the strangest song on the record but it really had me for some reason and um, yeah. so that I really when I hear that song now I really associate it with you know joyous nights but with slightly painful overtones if I fancied somebody and they went off with somebody else you know the, <laughs> those kind of echoes of, of unrequited love that's where the songs come from Neil right right yeah <laughs> Right, that's that's partying is always it's got the duality about it usually, hasn't it? Yeah. Before I ask for your your, your track, uh, I'm, I just want to know about them kind of because I'm going to, I'm going to take you home for, for this one. It's the the track regarding your home county, but in in those early sort of formative years of of, of playing. Can you sort of also tell me a little bit about the sort of scenes that were going on, and like, was it a healthy band scene, and, and was there sort of competitiveness within that, or was it, you know, or was there a real good community within it? Because I'm always fascinated by them kind of, sort of scenes where bands kind of break from. Um, well, I, actually, to be honest, where I grew up in, in Tiamatu, um, in the Waikato, in New Zealand, there was really hardly any bands at all that there were bands but they were playing at pubs and they were just i wasn't going to pubs at the time when i grew up obviously so i didn't get to see many bands there was a band called mandrake who had a fella called chris thompson um who ended up in manfred man singing blinding by the light and he wrote a few songs notable songs yeah for other people as well but he was in that band and i never got to see them but i became aware that they were you know they were sort of popular in the area but I can't really point to a scene that I was aware of. There was a scene of folk clubs. I used to go to folk club because it was the only place yeah. I knew of that people were playing music. And it wasn't that I was particularly a folky. I didn't wasn't attracted to mm. you know Celtic songs or whatever in my in the first instance. I became aware of them as a result of going to those. I was more like you know playing Cat Stevens songs and Neil Young songs, and they kind of yeah. fitted you know in there. They I, I could take, do those and. People accepted those as a, um, a, you know, from a young fella who didn't know any better. Um, and but when I got to Auckland, I was only there for about a year in Auckland before I got called to join Split Ends. So that and Split Ends was a very singular, had a very singular vision and didn't really feel part of any kind of scene. Most of the bands around at that time in Auckland were sort of playing boogies or boogie or you know blues music and or psychedelic or you know. Um, there was definite genres um, going on, that, and Split Ends had a very different mindset about who they related to, and it was definitely people mostly coming out of the UK at the time, um, you know, Roxy Music. Actually, they were big fans of Lindisfarne at the, in the early stages. Uh, there was something about the way that they sang that is is reminiscent of the way Tim and Phil sang on the early Split Ends records, that hard northern kind of... Really beautiful, but really hard kind of harmony singing that Lindisfarne did, and also you know bands like later on bands like the Lars were really good at you know that it's really sweet, but it's real hard edged as well. It's got a it's got a, um, a duality about it. 
absolutely. Well, I mean, even, you know, the UK, you know, jumped all over split ends and obviously have uh, very much adore what you've done with, with Crowded Ass. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your relationship with the UK. Well, I came over to join my brother's band in the UK in 1977. And so I had a quite a long year, year and a half living here and, um, you know, I've got golden yep. memories of the time, even though we were broke most of it, and we were dropped by a label, and yep. things weren't didn't go that well for us at the end of that. We, we we had an audience initially, and we still had a live audience, but you know, we didn't hadn't made that transition up to a level of success. Um, so, but you know, it didn't matter to me. I was just young. I was having a really fine time living, and and the Noel Crombie, who was the the kind of band, he was a percussionist and designed the costumes and. He and I lived in Chorley Wood, just north of London, and um, we had the best address I've ever had, number one Apple Tree Dell, Dog Kennel Lane, Chorley Wood, <laughs> uh, which was enough for me. That was good enough. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, we, and we, we, we really grew as a band in that time, and uh, there's some urgency to living to the way that music, good music comes out of the UK in part, I think, because it's a grim, there's a long winter, you've got to make your own beauty, you've got to make your own sunshine. And and there's a lot of grim places to be, and uh, there again, people make their own beauty, and they, you know, and the humour and the grit that comes out of those experiences is is the kind of foundation of a lot of amazing music here. I think, Absolutely. you know, there's, it's harder for people to make great music in beautiful tropical climates. I think because they're having said that, I mean, they didn't do too badly in Jamaica, but, uh, uh you know, like there's something about those slightly grim conditions but it gives you a sense of urgency and we certainly had urgency in that time we wanted to be we wanted to push on through and find you know find ourselves as a band so UK gave us some of that I think lovely this is your last track Neil and uh, I'm going to ask you to tell uh, me and the listeners uh, a song that you think many of us may not know that you would like us to hear please well this you may have to dig around a little bit to find this but um it's a song called The Lighthouse Keeper, and it's um, from a series called of that was a requiem. A, a friend of mine in New Zealand, Victoria Kelly, wrote it. It actually got played on BBC Three um, when it got released, and uh, so you can find it. But it's the most extraordinary piece of music that makes me cry when I hear it. Um, this guy Simon O'Neill that sings it, he was she. Uh, He's a tenor, uh, quite a successful opera singer in New Zealand, but she put this right up at the very top of his range. And so he sings it. It sounds like some, you can't tell if it's a woman or a man singing it. It's just really emotional. And uh, yeah, it's not like it's not coming from a pop idiom, but it's accessible. It, yeah, it's not going to make anyone run and hide. Um, it's actually really involving and beautiful piece of music. So giving it a plug right now. Well, we can uh, ensure that people get to listen to that and all the other songs that we've, we've spoken about today. We put together a little Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, and on that as well, we'll obviously have uh, the new single. Um, yeah. And, uh, and obviously some of your, your past works. And yeah, so the new album, I mean, we're recording this in, in February. The, the new album's not out just yet, right? That's yeah, May. For a while, May, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, uh, and I mean, I believe there's there is a little show tomorrow, which I'm I'm hopefully going to uh, pop up at. And uh, all right, you know, you know about the the little gathering at BMG. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. yeah. All right. Oh, oh we'll uh, see you there. So <laughs> absolutely. But for the for the for the wider masses, um, when are they going to get to see 
karate does do their thing. Well, we've got a tour that's already um, virtually sold out, I think, but it's um, we're playing uh, a series of castles in the UK, and you, you know can't get to do that anywhere else in the world. Uh, but we're outside a whole bunch of castles, some beautiful locations, um, uh, through June, and uh, I think there's one forest, the Wazing Park Forest or something. Um, and, and then, yeah, then we're coming back in, oh, uh, it's not even been announced yet, but I think we're coming back in September. Oh, to do fantastic. If people want yeah. to keep up to speed with all things created, ask straight to the website. Yeah, we've got a website and we've got, you know, a, I mean, I'm not on social media, but I know we have an active um, social media presence. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Neil, thank you so much for giving up your time today at Talk Records yeah, with me, nice mate. It's been pleasure. an absolute right. pleasure, mate. All right, mate. Thank Cheers. you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. All right. See ya. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Well, there you go. 500 episodes completed it. Neil Finn. Ah, oh, what a lovely, lovely man. Um, it was so nice. Um, thanks hugely to Tom for, for helping get this one over the line. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, any new listeners that jumped on the, the huge crowded house fans, uh, I hope you, you learned a little bit more about Neil and, uh, and his influences and in, in the, in the sound, uh, some of the songs that soundtracked his, his life to date. Um, yeah, go check out that new record. Um, go check out the back catalogue of this podcast. Um, just, yeah, I'm just quite overcome with it all at the moment because it was just so nice to get to chat to a hero. Um, yeah <laughs> 500 it's ridiculous anyway onwards to a thousand um thanks so much for listening um i love doing this uh and i love that that you've like listen and uh and, and get joy from it and yeah share this one about and uh nudge your mates and tell them that uh that there's this guy from essex with a lisp that gets overexcited talking to to musicians and DJs and producers and comedians and actors and uh, and yeah and uh, I'm done. I run out of things to say. I'm never lost for words, but I am. Thanks ever so much for all your support. Um, love you lots. I'll see you next time. Bye bye.